Well, good morning, Bridgeway Congregation. Thank you. Wow, thank you, worship team. You know, when uh, I love that last song, I haven't sung it in a while, but I hope you remember it when we talk about the love of God today. And even that last line that we sang about soaring with the Spirit, what a beautiful image. I have to say, though, that you really get to me when you sing, All to Jesus I Surrender. Isn't that both a beautiful song and an incredibly hard song to sing? The whole time I'm singing it, I'm going, can I really say these words, Lord? All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Wow. Oh, we need his help, don't we? Let's, let's bow in prayer before we go into the message today. Well, Lord Jesus, you heard the cry of our heart today. Oh, Lord, we praise you and worship you for the power of your love. And, Lord, I pray that that power of your real, authentic love will touch each and every person in this room. Lord, you also heard us declare that we would surrender our lives to you. And, Lord, I'm not sure if, as a loving father, you kind of smile as you hear us sing that. But, Lord, I'm... Please, in our weakness, be strong. And Lord, bring us to a place where surrendering to you wouldn't be so scary as it would be just a wonderful invitation to cease striving, to know that you are God and to give everything to you. Lord, it's all yours anyway. Lord, every breath we breathe is because of you. Oh, Lord, forgive me, forgive us for being so reluctant, for hanging on so tightly to our lives. Oh, Lord Jesus, we confess that we, we don't get what you meant when we said that we only gain our life when we lose it. You modeled it and we still don't get it. But, oh, Lord, I pray, Lord, hear the cry of our heart and may it be the reality of our lives, of our church, that we truly will surrender all to you. Oh, we need you, Jesus. Just as Dwayne shared, wow, Jesus, you are what it's all about. So, Spirit of God, I pray that you would speak through these words of mine today. And Lord, Holy Spirit, speak powerfully through your word today as we look into your scripture. And we pray this all together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are week two into a new series for the new year that you see on the screen. It's called Healthy Church, Biblical Church. And this is about the discipleship journey that we want to be on together. Now, in this transition year, and I apologize, I didn't introduce myself for any guests or visitors today. My name is Don Fraze, and I serve here as a transitional pastor, which means that I'm here on a one-year term to help the church through a transitional period. So we are very specifically on a journey of transformation this year, as Duane so well put, and we are in a journey of transition. So our first phase of transition was, was mostly about dealing with the past and talking about healing and closure and all of those kinds of things. And now in the new year, we're kind of into phase two where both as leadership teams and also as the congregation, we want to start talking about renewing our mission, renewing our vision, bringing clarity to it, bringing understanding to it, bringing ownership to it, but also making it simple so that we can all participate wholeheartedly and fully on what God's calling us to be. So we are going to be covering a whole ton of topics over the next months, but it's all going to be kind of in this progression and, and around this theme. So the next slide gives us the foundation that all of this comes from. If we're just trying to do fancy church with vision statements and all that kind of stuff, I'm not interested in that either. But if our foundation is this, this is where it begins. And they're the two greatest statements made by Jesus. They're called the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And the Great Commandment is simply when Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments in Matthew 22? He said, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Oh yes, and the second, just as great, equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. Starting point one. And then as Jesus left this earth, he gave us the Great Commission. And he said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. 
And I just want that to resound in your heart. Don't just see this as a missions verse, but see this as a mission verse for the entire church of Jesus Christ. We're called to be disciples and we're called to make disciples as we love God and love each other. That is as simple as it can get from scripture as to what our vision and mission is. So on that foundation, how do we articulate that for us here uniquely at Bridgeway? So that's the next slide, and this is kind of what we've been working on. So our leadership in the past has described our overall purpose as being that we exist to glorify God and make him known. But how do we state our, our mission and our, our vision as Bridgeway Community Church? Now we've had mission statements in the past that have been very good, but they're sometimes lengthy and they're not very memorable. So even though we read them from time to time and go, oh, that's good, we really should be doing that, it usually just ends up, as Darren tells me all the time, in the back of one of those leadership binders, right? Yeah, and then we never talk about it again. So again, there's nothing wrong with those statements, but if they aren't memorable and if they don't actually connect to our hearts and don't actually become owned by us as a congregation and become meaningful in such a way that if someone was to ask us, hey, what's the vision of your church anyway? We wouldn't go, I have no idea. But we actually would have an idea. And wouldn't it be cool if someone asked us, what's the vision of Bridgeway anyway for us to be able to say transformation, transformation in Jesus. That's what we want to be all about. In our personal lives, in every ministry that we do as a church, we want it to be about transformation in Jesus. So that's kind of what we're proposing and praying about and talking about. That's why we call it a, a proposed mission. Again, a mission statement or a vision statement needs to be something that's memorable, something that's real, that we can own and that we can remember. But again, it's only a statement if it's just an ideal. And Duane, I really appreciate how you already helped me out with this. It's how you know someone's a leader when they get this stuff and articulate it so well, and, and thank you for that. And it's about transformation. That's what even this whole transitional period is about. So consider this and pray about this as we, as we walk through this. Now, to have a great mission statement, no matter how exciting it may be, if it doesn't have any substance to how are we going to do it, then it can just seem like another wonderful thing to say, but does it make any difference? And that's where these discipleship steps come in. So this is where we're beginning this series. So last week, I started with the step of create community, and today we're going to go to the next step, which is experience and model Jesus' love. Well, we had great songs about that already today. So I'm going to suggest to you that before we even think about modeling Jesus' love, I think we need to experience Jesus' love. I think it's really hard to model something that you haven't experienced for yourself. Now, how do you feel about that word experience? Hmm. The last couple songs we sang had some key lines about, even, even in the hymns, about feeling, feeling the Holy Spirit as well as the newer songs that talk a lot about experiencing God's love. How do you feel about experience? Well, let me tell you a little bit about my journey. I grew up in the church. I grew up in the conservative church. And I was brought up to be a little bit cynical, maybe a lot cynical, about experience. You see, the way I was brought up, you know, those charismatics and Pentecostals, they're all into experience. But you know, us biblical Baptists and Alliance and Mennonite Brethren and AGC, you know, we're, like we're people of the word. We're Bible people. We don't need experience. That's just for those crazy people. How do, how do you feel about experience? How many of you remember, you have to be really old, really old to remember this, the Four Spiritual Laws, a little yellow booklet that came out in the 1970s. It's been renamed and redone many times. But in the back, what, what, the Four Spiritual Laws was just a simple little tract to share the gospel with people. And it had four laws or four steps to accepting Jesus. A great strategy that, that was very effective in its time. Now, what I remember, though, so distinctly is that in the back of the book, there was always this train. Anybody remember this train? Okay, some of you remember the train. Now, the other thing that's outdated about this tract and this illustration and this train is that most of you know there's no cabooses anymore. Like, what's the deal with that? 
I loved cabooses. I thought they were the really, one of the coolest parts of the train. And now you see a whole long train go by, and then it's just the last car. Like, how boring is that? I loved cabooses. So I have no idea why there's no cabooses anymore, but if you're really young and you're going, what's he talking about? There used to be this cool car at the end of a train called a caboose. Anyway, they're gone. But that has nothing to do with the illustration. Well, it kind of does. But you see, this is what we were taught. We were taught when you're doubting your faith or wondering about the experiential side of faith, you need to make sure that that stuff is the caboose. Basically, the idea was, we believe in Jesus, or we're Christians, because of the facts that are true, and because we put faith to it. That's what matters. You need to know the facts, put your faith in it, that makes you a Christian, feelings don't matter. Now, I'm saying it really strongly, but that's how I heard it. That's how I understood it as a Christian for much of my life, was that experience and feeling was not only something that didn't matter, but I even kind of had the sense that there might be even something wrong or suspect about it, or something wrong to focus on. Now, I would still believe in a sense that this is true, in, in the fact that our, our faith does have a foundation in fact and in faith, and that's what leads us. But I would also suggest to you that experience and feeling in terms of our relationship with Jesus experiencing his love and sharing his love actually matters a lot. You know, I remember as, as, as a young pastor, was still a quite, quite a young adult, going through a time of, of dryness in my life and just really hungering and thirsting for more of God and more of the Spirit. And yet I always had this struggle with which, what I just described to you about, no, I just need to get the facts right Make sure my theology's good, make sure I know my Bible, put my faith into action, and it'll all be good. Why was there this deep longing for more inside of me? And I, I didn't know how to grapple with that. And you know, I'll never forget the first time I allowed myself to let people lay hands on me and pray for me. And you know, I won't describe the whole story, but you know what? I didn't do anything crazy. I didn't speak in tongues. I didn't manifest anything crazy. All that happened to me in that moment was that at the first time in my life, and I'd already been a Christian for years, but it was the first time in my life that I had a deep sense in my heart and in my spirit that God really loved me. I knew it. I preached it. I taught it. I could give you all the faith and all the facts that God loved me. But there was a longing. And I'll never forget the waves of God's love that came over my heart and my spirit. And it was a game changer for me. My heart for all of us today is we can experience God's love. Now, when you talk about experience or you talk about feeling, it's such a subjective thing to talk about because we're all unique and we all experience Jesus differently. And you know what? I believe that he's, because he's created us uniquely, that he does meet us uniquely. So I don't want anyone today to think that you have to have a certain kind of experience that sounds like mine or anyone else's. You need to seek Jesus. Seek him and seek his heart for you and allow him to pour out his love on you in your unique way. And I believe he desires so much to do that in all of our lives. So, all I can do today is point to scripture and point to some of my journey and hopefully encourage you and encourage us as a church in this discipleship step of let's experience God's love and then let's demonstrate God's love to each other. That is such a key part of being a disciple and of making disciples. So, where do we begin? I believe in experiencing Jesus' love, we begin with a sense of awe and a sense of gratitude. Awe and gratitude coming together in what sometimes seems conflicting. And what I mean is that there's this awe of how great and powerful and amazing God is, and yet this gratitude that this powerful, amazing, creating God knows me, knows you, cares about the intimate details of your life and my life. It seems impossible and so we need to begin with an incredible sense of awe and gratitude. Let me illustrate a, a few places in Scripture. 
Psalm 145. Now, I'm going to jump around to a bunch of scriptures today. I apologize for that. I usually like to just teach one. So I can't include all of the wonderful verses and read it all, so I know I'll be a little selective here, but uh, just, just want you to know. So here's a part of Psalm 145, starting at verse 3. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And then verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. Do you see that seeming contradiction? Do you see that tension between being in awe of the all-powerful creating God and yet also being amazed and being filled with gratitude over he forgives us, he knows us, he's full of compassion, he's full of love, he's gracious to us. That's our God. We begin with acknowledging that tension that awe, and having that gratitude. I heard a speaker say recently, the only way that we can combat resentment is by gratitude by the hour. Well, that one really hit me. The importance of gratitude and getting a vision of Christ. Now, Jesus modeled over and over again this for us. Let me, let me just, get, just give, you a, give you a few stories. Dwayne, thanks for already starting us down the road of this. Now, one time, Jesus was invited. This is in Luke chapter 7. A Pharisee, or a religious leader at the time, invited Jesus to come over to his place for dinner. And it was a big deal. He was inviting Jesus to come over to all the, with all the important people gathered. And in the middle of that gathering, a woman comes in, don't understand the culture enough to know how these random things happen, but they do. A woman comes in, she kneels at Jesus' feet, she opens up a jar of perfume, she starts to anoint his feet with oil, weeping with tears, and she anoints Jesus' feet. And all of the religious people in the room, including the Pharisee that invited Jesus to the party, were incensed and just completely, this is wrong. Now here's what's interesting about this passage. This Pharisee is just thinking these thoughts in his head. And in his head, he says, um, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know the kind of woman who's touching him. Of course, Jesus knew his thoughts. And so then this is what Jesus said to him. You see the scripture on the screen. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Scary thought to think of Jesus answering our thoughts that we think are secret, right? Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of them both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Jesus understood and taught and modeled that when we're forgiven much, we love much. And that was the kind of heart and attitude that he had toward people. And it was also why the self-righteous religious people bugged him and angered him so much because they did not understand his mission and his purpose to come and bring love and healing to his creation. There's so many, so many more examples that I could tell you about. I'll tell, I'll tell you just a few. So also in Luke, in chapter 19, we read about a short man named Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus was even worse than the regular sinners of the day. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. The person that the Jew hated the most because a tax collector was one of their own who was a traitor to Rome and that took advantage of people and basically stole their money. And they just despised and hated tax collectors. So this Zacchaeus guy is so short that he can't see Jesus because of the crowds, so he climbs a tree, 
He's looking down on all of this, and Jesus spots him and goes, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And the grumbling started by all the religious people. He's going to the house of sinners. And guess who Zacchaeus invited to the party? Well, all of his friends. And who do you think his friends were? All the other despised people of of the nation, of that city. And they all came over. And Jesus sat with them and ate with them and then saw a transformation as Zacchaeus declared, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to repent. I'm going to give back what I've done wrong. And Jesus said, yeah, transformation, forgiveness, salvation has come to this house today. So many more examples. Go to the book of John. John talks about this Samaritan woman that Jesus met. Now, this story is great because Jesus and his disciples are traveling from one part of where the Jews lived called Judea to the other area where the Jews lived called um, Galilee. And most of the time, they went around the place in the middle. That place in the middle was called Samaria. And they so hated the Samaritans because they were just dirty half-breeds and they hated them that they would much rather go around, especially the religious people because they would not want to taint themselves with the terrible evils of the world and those Samaritans. And so they loved to avoid it. But not Jesus, they went right through. So they they sit down at a well, they're tired, they're thirsty, they're hungry, the disciples go to town to get food. And what does Jesus do? He strikes up a conversation with a woman. Now that seems like no big deal to us, but in that culture, not only was Jesus talking to a Samaritan, which he shouldn't have done as a godly Jew, but he was talking to a woman in public that he never should have done as a Jew. And yet, Jesus cares about her and asks her for water, and then he ends up telling her, hey, I could give you something called living water, and you'd never thirst again. Of course, she's all intrigued, doesn't quite get it right away, but she's all intrigued, and and then Jesus says, hey, go get your husband and family, and she goes, well, actually, I don't have a husband, and then Jesus says, well, actually, you've had seven Now, when we read that, we think, oh, is Jesus being all judgmental and just like pointing out her sin? I actually think it was the opposite. Jesus was so kind to her and so forgiving to her and so unjudgmental of her that he was able to say, hey, you know what? I know all things about you. I know all the messiness and mistakes and sin and struggle and brokenness of your life. And guess what? I still want to offer you living water. I still offer love and acceptance of you. Now, did Jesus say, therefore, don't change anything in your life and just keep living the way you are? No, of course. There was transformation and change. But it didn't come because Jesus was judgmental and wanting to point things out. It came because of his love, because of his acceptance, because he wanted to minister to people. He wanted to demonstrate his love. And then if you keep going on in in John, in chapter 8, there's another story of where The religious people, once again, they bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus and say, the law says we should stone her to death. What do you say, Jesus? It's a great story. Sum it it all up, Jesus basically says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. And scripture says they all left. And then Jesus stood there and he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's our Jesus who modeled over and over and over again that he didn't see people through the eyes of judgment. He saw all of the hurt and pain and messiness and sin and every evil intent. He saw it all and yet he looked at his creation with love and said, I love you. I came to save you, to restore you, to be in relationship with you, for you to be whole again. That's our Jesus. That's the kind of awe and gratitude that each one of these people had. This awe that this incredible prophet that some of them were even starting to believe might be the Messiah. That they hang out with me. They know everything about me and aren't condemning me and pushing me away and looking at me in disgust. No, it's the opposite. He's looking at me with love. He's offering me living water. He's offering me forgiveness. He's demonstrating a love for me that I've never seen in religion. This is so radical and different, it must, I hope, be true. And so there was incredible gratitude. Every time Jesus would heal someone or minister to someone and say, okay, don't tell anybody, 
what did they do? They just told everybody because there was so much gratitude, so much awe of who he was and so much gratitude. And can I suggest, my dear sisters and brothers in this room, are we any different? Are we like the religious leaders that think the sinners are the people out there? Or maybe just the people in the next pew. But they're not us. No, it's us. We are the broken. We are the sinful. Jesus knows it all. And yet chooses to love us. He wants to restore us. He wants to transform us. Can that gratitude break you to the point that you can open up your heart to experience his love? I hope and pray the Spirit will help you with that, help me with that. So in this process, beyond awe and gratitude, I would suggest that part of the journey is what I would call hungering and thirsting. Hungering and thirsting after God. Another example from a psalm, Psalm 42. Listen to these words. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Do you hear the thirst of the psalmist? Do you understand the comparison? Just like this wild animal, this deer, that's perhaps been running for miles and is desperately, desperately thirsty. That's the image of thirsting for God, of thirsting for his love and his presence. And what does that come from? Do you see where the thirst came from? It came from immense pain, from tears, from declaring in all honesty and vulnerability before God to say, my tears have been my food. People are mocking me. People are saying, where is your God? How can God be real when you're so messed up and your life is so messed up? All of those accusations, the honesty of my soul is downcast and disturbed within me. Ever been there? And yet somehow it's in that posture. It's in that broken, humble, downcast posture that deep, deep hunger and deep, deep thirst for God is born. Jesus himself said in the Beatitudes, famous, his famous teachings, just one verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. It's the next slide. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Don't you love that? I love that promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will, not might, the promise of Jesus, for they will be filled. We can hang on to that promise of Jesus. Now maybe for some of you, you're in a season of dryness. You're in what we sometimes call a desert season of life. And you're longing for something real. You're longing to experience and feel the love of Jesus personally for you. I'll never forget a season like that in my life. I remember the time when my wife Una and I invited this couple to come and do some ministry in our church. And uh, we got some chance to visit with them. And we were sharing openly with them of just the struggles we were having and the, the season of dryness we were going through. And I'll never forget because he looked, this, this guy we were talking to, he just looked at us with love and just, just simply made, this, made the statement that desert kills the flesh and creates a hunger and thirst for God. He basically was saying to us, you know what? Being in this season of desert, this season of dryness, is not necessarily a bad thing. It may be exactly what God has for you because it's in those times, as he said, desert kills the flesh and creates a hunger 
and thirst for God. So can I encourage you, maybe if you're at your darkest, thirstiest time for the reality of God and his love in your life, it may be because it's just around the corner. And yet he invites us. God says in so many different places, and Jesus reinforces it, that if you seek me, you will find me. Seek him. Allow your thirst and hunger to grow. could say so much more about that. But let's talk a little bit now about we've experienced Jesus' love. We're desiring to experience Jesus' love. We want that to be real in our lives. So then how do we begin to model it? Well, I guess the easy answer is when we've experienced Jesus' love, modeling it just kind of becomes outflow and overflow. When we experience Jesus' love, some of it just kind of oozes out of us because there's so much awe and gratitude of what he's done for us that in our brokenness and our pain that he met us. That's the ideal. And yet there's still intentionality. You know, one of the big mistakes that uh, God's people, the Jews, made was as God's chosen people, they loved it when they had God's love and God's protection. The problem was, as soon as they got a big dose of God's love, they wanted to keep it for themselves. And that was never God's plan. He called them to be a nation, to be a testimony to all the nations. So the fact that God would pour out his love on us is not just so that we can just all be all happy, warm, fuzzy, yes, I have God's love, but it's so that it oozes out of us so that we not only experience God's love, but we begin to demonstrate it because it's coming and oozing out of us. That's why when Jesus talked about the great, the great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Oh yeah, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's an intentionality to loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, that's another whole story, but the religious leaders didn't like this of Jesus either, and they thought they'd challenge him, and one of the religious leaders said, okay, well, who's your neighbor? And that's when Jesus tells the very famous parable that we call the Good Samaritan. And I won't I won't describe that parable. But basically in that parable, what Jesus illustrates is that our neighbor is everyone that the Lord brings, brings along our path. Our as you go, as we go, make disciples. And as we go, the people that he brings in our path are the ones that he's calling us to love. It's a huge, huge thing to think about. So how do we model Jesus' love? Well, you see on the screen already the words of 1 John 3 and 1 John 4, which can sum it up and say it much better than me, so let's just read it from the scriptures. These whole, all of these chapters could be unpacked to give us great teaching on how to model Jesus' love. Just a few verses to, to highlight. So 1 John chapter 3, 16 to 18 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Hmm, sounds kind of like I surrender all. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Wow. Wow. Let us love not with words or speech, but with actions and truth. That can be a real hard one. Now, you're probably not surprised to hear me say this, since I'm blabbing up here, but I'm a words guy. Words are important to me, both to hear words from others and also expressing words to declare love for people that I care about is is something that's really important to me. I don't think that John is saying here that words don't matter. I think words do matter. But I would also suggest that it's very true what John's saying, that actions speak much louder than words. Now, if my wife Una was here today to talk about our marriage, she would say that's absolutely true. (laughs) She would say, words are cheap. 
I can say all I want to say about how much I love her, but when I do things for her, when action accompanies my love, that speaks far deeper. And I think that for most, that's very true. And when we are demonstrating Jesus' love, you know, it's so easy at, at, at one level to just glibly say, oh yes, I love my brothers and sisters. I love my church family. Yeah. But what John's telling us here is actions speak louder than words. How much demonstrating of love happens? You know, I was really impacted this last week. Um, Darren announced at the beginning that uh, Harold Martin's passed away last week and the family met here on Friday and it was an incredible service of remembrance and celebration. And so many things impacted me throughout this last week, but watching, watching um, the church rally and the family rally, seeing all the food that poured in here, there was a lot of actions going on. And I know that Sylvia would say there was a lot of those actions that meant a lot more than the words, although I'm sure she appreciated the words too. What kind of actions beyond words is God calling us to? In uh, 1 John chapter 4, the verses on the other side, it says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Wow. This would have been a tough sermon to be in when John was doing this one. I don't know about you, but it doesn't take long for me to be honest with myself and flashes of people go across my brain. Now, I'm trying to be a good Christian, so I would never say I hate them. I would just say, they really annoy me. They really bug me. I don't really like them that much. Okay, what's the honest? Now, this is a tough one. But if I'm reading John here, it sounds like I'm kind of a liar to say I love God and hate my brothers and sisters. Ever notice that sometimes the hardest people to love are the people right within our spiritual family? That's why it's been such a tough journey for us. Can I encourage us to keep walking that journey? Now this, this would be a tough challenge for this week ahead, so I'm, I'm not even sure I want to say it because I'm going to ask you to do it, i got to do it. But am I willing to let actions speak louder than words? Am I willing to even take one person that flashed through my mind that I don't really like that much, but they're my brother and sister in Christ? Am I willing to do something, an action, that will express my love? To express and demonstrate the love of Jesus. I encourage you and challenge me and you with that this week. So as I close, I want to give you one more Jesus story. Oh, it's already up on the screen. It's in Mark chapter 10. And here it goes. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, if you've read this passage before or heard sermons or teachings on this passage before, you're all thinking, but Don, that's not, that's not the end of the story. You're right. You're right. Right after Jesus looked at him and loved him, he said, well, you also lack one thing. Sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And then the scripture says, and the man went away sad because he was wealthy. That's another whole sermon. What I want you to hear today is that Jesus looked at this man and loved him. 
I want you to hear and see today that Jesus knew everything about this man. All the things that all of our self-righteousness is going, whoa, like, we find out that he's rich. So we think, well, this story doesn't really apply to us. We're all pretty much middle-class Canadians. I would say we're all rich. We also wonder, Jesus says, what he, 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 this guy has the audacity to basically say to Jesus, oh yeah, I've kept all the Ten Commandments. I'm good. I've done it, I've done it all. Done all the good religious work, Jesus. I'm good. See, we, we don't think we're that guy either. Jesus knew everything about this man. He knew how much he loved his treasures, his wealth. He knew how self-righteous he was. And in fact, he knew all of the secret things that this man would hope no one would ever know. Jesus knew all of it. And what I want you to see and hear today, that in spite of knowing all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, Jesus looked at him and loved him. So I ask you today, do you feel that you or your life is so messed up? That you've disappointed God so much over the years or how things are currently going in your life that Jesus would never look at you and love you? Do you believe that Jesus knows everything about you? He knows absolutely every struggle you're going through now. He knows every sin. He knows everything. He knows the good and the bad and the ugly about you. And I declare to you, in the name of Jesus and the truth of his word, that he looks at you and loves you. I'd like to suggest to you that that train I showed you at the beginning, that that is fact. You can believe it by faith. And I pray, and I pray, and I pray that you'd open up your heart and open up your soul in such a way that you would experience his love. He looks at you, and he loves you. My sisters and brothers, if we can see ourselves as Jesus sees us, we would be amazed because we all just assume that he's disappointed, angry, and is wondering why we're not doing better and why we're not doing more, and he's just this. That is not Jesus. That is not your Father God. He looks at you and loves you even though he knows it all. Now, does that mean that he's saying, oh, I'm just good, just continue to suffer and struggle and sin and I don't care? No, that's not what it means at all. He loves us so much that he wants to transform our lives. He wants us to walk in victory. He wants all that for us, but he doesn't come to us judging us. He comes to us loving us and says, let's go on a journey together. I'm the one that can heal you. I'm the one that can transform you. I'm the one that can give you hope. I'm the one that can pour out love in you so that you can pour out love to others. It's not about you. It's his work in you. We surrender all and say yes. See yourself as Jesus sees you. And I pray then that when we see others, we're going to see them through the eyes of Jesus. Not the eyes of our judgment, not the eyes of our pain, not the eyes of our preconceived ideas or what we think spirituality should look like, but through the eyes of Jesus, who loved so incredibly. That's our model. So, in this discipleship step, experience and model Jesus' love needs to start first in our hearts and our lives, in our close relationships, in the various communities that we find ourselves within our congregation and beyond. As we experience God's love, let it ooze out. Let's demonstrate with actions more and words this incredible, incredible love of Jesus. So I'm going to ask the, the worship team to come. We're going to close with a song that uh, I think the worship teams are all sick of me requesting because I like it so much. <laughs> The song is simply singing John 3.16, which is, For God so loved the world 
that he gave. This song is for God so loved. So let this be our response today. That first verse says, Come, all you weary. Come, all you thirsty. Come to the well that never runs dry. Drink of the water. Come and thirst no more. Come to Jesus. Experience. Cry out for his love. Let's sing this together. Please stand with us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, praise him for the wonders of his love. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that we can trust in the words that are in the Bible, that they are facts and they are true, that you love us. And I pray that as Don said, that we have a deep knowing of that within our spirits and within our heart and soul. And I'll just close with the words from Ephesians. And I pray... And I pray that you, being rooted and established and loved, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. May it be so. Amen, Lord.